Well, our speaker today comes from the Assemblies of God Mecca in Springfield, uh, Missouri. Uh, Marty is a professor uh, at um, Springfield University. The beauty of, about Marty is that he and I go way back uh, from hanging out and playing sports with each other, against each other, him putting up with my leg cramps that would, I would constantly get, that he would constantly, to this day, continues to make fun of. But uh, we, we grew up just, I can't even believe we're still alive, some of the stuff that we did, I have to admit, <laughs> that we would never tell our kids, that, that's for sure. But, um, you know, you're, you're growing up and sometimes you sort of fade away and that's what sort of happened with Marty and, and I. We went, we went our own ways and our own directions and then um, we ended up coming back together at seminary and so we would actually carpool and we were doing our masters together at, um, at the then Winnipeg Theological, now Providence. And doing Greek and, and Hebrew and classes and Marty's favorite course as well as mine was counseling. No offense to you counselors, but you know, we did really well in those courses. Uh, and just talking and building a friendship. And this friendship has been deep-seated, deep-rooted for a long period of time. And to, to watch his journey going from pastor to professor has been uh, amazing. And then to see my friend, you know, publish his works, but also just be an effective communicator who knows the scripture and who can bring the scripture alive. And it's just an honor for me to introduce and to turn this over to my friend, and I get to sit back and listen and be taught. But I would like you to give a Soul Sanctuary welcome to Marty Middlestad. Thank you very much. Oh. <laughs> you got a cramp there? Here, let me work it out for you. All right. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Knock him dead. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Thank you, uh, first of all, Mr. Machalski Jr. for praying for me. Mr. Mach praying for Mr. Middlestad. I thought he was going to call me Uncle Marty, and I'm not his uncle. Good to be here. Jerry has some uh, funny stories, of course. I thought about sharing a few, but we both turned 50 this year. And uh, maybe it's time to grow up and not share bad stories or terrible stories. So uh, I'll save those for later if anybody wants to come and talk a little more. I do want to honor Jerry briefly this morning before I get started. Uh, you know, I teach uh, each and every day. I've been teaching now 15 years. I love my job. And at the same time, when I think about uh, what it's like to be a teacher, a number of you in this room are teachers, maybe some of you professors. I know Gord Giesbrick's in the crowd here. And, you know, you teach a course over and over. You know, some of my classes I've taught maybe 30 times over these years, and it just becomes second nature. It just comes out. You got this much material, and you got this much time. But uh, I have great respect for pastors because they have to come up with something fresh each and every week. You just don't repeat a course. You don't just keep going through the same material and sharpening it. Or kind of like the evangelist that goes around with a suitcase with six sermons. You know that guy, right? And the sermons are absolutely awesome because they've preached them who knows how many times. That was an attempt at humor. <laughs> but uh, just to say very, very briefly, make sure you respect the, uh, the time that pastors need to take to proclaim the Word of God. It's the primary responsibility, prayer and the Word. 
And sermons just don't happen. Talks, messages don't just happen. They take hard work. It takes research, study, prayer. And, you know, if, if the pastor's at every t-ball game, hockey game, Bass Pro fishing tournament, I mean, you just, it can't happen. So um, I know Jerry's a very relational guy, but I, I really respect and honor what a great preacher he is and uh, make sure that you always take good advantage of that. I want to just uh, thank the worship team as well for picking this song, If I Had a Million Dollars. It's been a while since I've heard it. Don't hear of uh, the bare naked ladies. <laughs> it's just to say that in church. It's kind of fun. <laughs> don't, don't actually hear the bare naked ladies down in the U.S. very often, so it's kind of cool. But uh, my message this morning, my talk for you is I want to turn to uh, Luke chapter, well, Luke chapter 18 actually. My message is camels, needles, and the kingdom of God. And you might see on there Luke chapter 19, I uh, might have been a typo, but I guess we'll see. But if uh, you'd like to follow on the screen, I'd like for us to read from uh, the story of the rich ruler, Luke chapter 18. If you have your device and you'd like to pull it out and follow along that way, feel free to do that. But let's read it. Listen to the story. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these things I've kept since I was a boy, the ruler said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and you will receive treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a wealthy man. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this ask, Who the heck can be saved? Come on, Jesus. Who can be saved? And Jesus replies, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter says to him, Pete, you guys know Pete, how Pete likes to respond, hey, we've left everything we have to follow you. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. You know, Luke is uh, often referred to as the gospel writer that has a preferential option for the poor. What does that mean? It means that Luke is often referred to as one who believes his Jesus, Luke's Jesus, in contrast to the Jesus of Matthew and Mark and John, Luke's Jesus seems very inclined to the poor, the downcast, the downtrodden. And uh, that's a pretty good assessment. In fact, you take a look at some of the passages in Luke, and if you just do a quick walk through there, it's not Christmas yet, but you know the Magnificat. You know the story when, uh, G when Mary is told that she's going to have this child, and she sings this song of praise by the Spirit. And in this song, she sings along this line, the, the, the proud will be scattered, those who are rich will lose, those who are humble will be lifted up, those who are poor will be receiving much from the new coming king. You go to Luke chapter 4, in fact. Let's start there. In Luke chapter 4, this is uh, Jesus' inaugural sermon. Welcome to the ministry. So Jesus, the, 
the young preacher comes into the synagogue in Nazareth in his hometown. He walks in and it's that particular, we don't know whether he turns to Isaiah 58 or if that's the reading for that particular day. He turns there and he reads the scripture. And from Isaiah 58 and a little bit of 61, the language is, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, sight to the blind, that the lame may walk, that the deaf may hear, and then this final statement, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you're not familiar with the Jewish text here, the year of the Lord's favor might be missed by us. But that text refers to jubilee, to the jubilee, a part of the feasts and the celebration, not the feast, but the celebration on a a seven-year and a 50-year period within Judaism whereby people are given a second chance. You're given a chance to have debts relinquished and be able to have a fresh start. So Jesus' statement, the proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, is not some nice buzz that you're going to get. It's a second chance for the downtrodden, the marginalized. You go to um, Luke chapter 6. Blessed are the poor. Part of the Beatitudes, you know that passage. In fact, I think it's rather interesting that when we grow up in Sunday school, we grow up in church, the Beatitudes that we typically learn are the ones from Matthew. That bugs me. I think we should read Luke. Luke's a much better theologian than Matthew. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In case anyone wants to just try to figure out what poor in spirit means, spiritualize something, you know, a soft heart toward God, poor before God, so on and so forth. Luke makes it very clear. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who are hungry will be filled. Those who are weeping will laugh. Strong language that's inclined to the poor. Continuing on, you go to Luke chapter 7, and Jesus' ministry is just getting off to its, its start, and at one point, John the Baptist goes to his disciples, two of them, and he says, uh, you know, uh, we keep hearing about Jesus, this guy, and we're not wondering if he's the guy that uh, we're supposed to be expecting or is someone else coming. So they go and they ask Jesus, are you the guy or should we be looking for someone else? And you know what Jesus says? He looks back at these guys. He says, go tell John that the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, lepers are being cleansed, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Exactly what Luke read, what, what Jesus read in Luke chapter 4, proclaiming the year of the Lord, Jesus goes out and in fact he does that. There's so many more, but the parable of the great banquet, where you know the story where uh, Jesus gives this, this tale, this parable of how uh, the kingdom of God would look like and who is invited to the great banquet, to the great feast. Those who have, those who are rich, those who are able to come. But of course, everybody has excuses. No one is willing to come at that particular time, that particular moment. And so the one who is putting on the party, the great celebration, says, go to the highways and the byways. Go out into the streets and the alleys and pull in anybody who is willing, the poor, the downcast. So Luke has quite a strong emphasis upon the poor. You go to Acts in the book of Acts that Luke also wrote. The needy, there were no needy people among them when you come after the day of Pentecost. They share their possessions. They don't sell everything, but they share their possessions and make sure that those who are needy are cared for. You have the story of the widows 
who are um, being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. In Acts chapter 6, the widows are comforted. You have famine relief. A prophecy is given about a famine through the Roman world, and they're going to take... Do you hear this theme? The preferential option for the poor. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul kind of summarizes his whole... Uh, ministry when he says goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He says, I'll never see your face again. And part of his final message, just a short little synopsis that Luke gives us, he quotes Jesus. He says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Again, a message about reaching out to the poor. So Luke seems to have a preferential option for the poor. Not only that, Luke actually seems to be somewhat uh, anti-rich. Luke seems to be pretty harsh toward those who are rich. Or is he? In, Luke, in, in Luke's parable, or pardon me, Sermon on the Plain, in Luke's Sermon on the Plain, not only you have the Beatitudes, blessed are those, but you have the woes. Woe to those who are rich because you've had your fill now. You've got everything you're ever going to get. Woe to you who are laughing now. It's going to be time to weep. Woe to you who are rich the time is coming while you have nothing. Wow, pretty harsh language. You take a look at the rich man and Lazarus, the parable. Interesting, the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is the poor beggar. Lazarus is named. Very interesting in that culture. Lazarus is named. The scum, the nothing of society, the beggar outside of the rich man's home. And he has nothing, no, no, he gets no... Um, Offerings from the, from, the, from the rich man to be able to take care of him. The, the, the poor beggar is, is never able to, to have daily sustenance. They both die. It's a parable. They both die. The, Lazarus finds his place at the side of Abraham. The rich man winds himself in, finds himself in hell. And the rich man says, I would like to have some relief. Calls upon Abraham, I'd like some relief. Pretty harsh story. Not a chance. A rich man says, could you at least tell my brothers, Father Abraham, so that they might have a chance? And the response is, your brothers have Moses, the law, they have the prophets. If they haven't listened so far, they're not going to listen now. Wow, pretty harsh stuff. And apparently in our story at hand, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Come and follow me. Pretty harsh. Pretty harsh. Peter and the disciples did it. At Luke chapter 5, they were fishing, they dropped their nets, they leave everything, and they come and follow Jesus. Camels, needles, and the kingdom of God. It seems that it's very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But what is impossible with man is possible with God continuing to consider how we might interpret this. Some have taken the story of the rich ruler and obeyed it literally. Some of you may have heard of Tony. Tony was born in the year 251 and born to a very rich family. One day he read this passage, and the, the rich, rich ruler, he read the passage, took it literally, decided to sell all of his possessions, made sure that he saved a little bit of the money to take care of his only sister, gave the rest to the poor, and wound up going into the desert. 
He lived among the des- in the desert. People came out. He was an exorcist. He was a healer. He was a prophetic man. He lived to be 100 years old, according to tradition. We know him today, some of you possibly, as St. Anthony of Egypt, the founder of the Desert Fathers. He felt like life was too cozy, it was too cushy, and he read this passage, took it literally, and went out into the desert. Tony, or St. Anthony of Egypt. But a thousand years later, 12th century, Frank shows up. Frank is also a rich man. Frank has lots and lots of wealth. His father is uh, a successful businessman, silk dealer. Frank decides, I'm going to take what I have, give it to the poor. How does he come to this conclusion? It's about a 20-year process, but he comes to this conclusion by reading this passage over and over again. You know him probably better as Francis of Assisi, St. Francis, who the current pope has taken his name from. So is Luke anti-rich. Well, let's turn now to Luke chapter 19. Let's read this passage. I'm going to suggest that in this story, Zacchaeus is a camel going through the eye of a needle. Luke chapter 18, one chapter later, Luke shows us a camel going through the eye of a needle. He shows us what is impossible with man being possible with God. Follow along. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was sure, he could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay him back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the son of Abraham came to save, to seek and to save that which was lost. I suggest to you that Zacchaeus is a camel going through the eye of a needle. He's the consummate example of what it means to see something that's impossible with man be possible with God. Pause for a minute. Did you see what just happened with these two passages? The rich ruler is told, go sell everything and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Zacchaeus, he doesn't sell everything, does he? Did you notice that? He makes reparation for some of the dishonesty, for the taking advantage of people, but he gets off a little better than the rich ruler. Well, why? How much does Zacchaeus give up? If you were to go to the Old Testament, you'd be able to read, and I won't do these right now, but you can go to Leviticus chapter 6, you can go to Exodus 22, and oftentimes in the Pentateuch, we don't read a lot of those texts, those stories, those, those uh, principles. They're pretty um, difficult to read. They're sometimes pretty, um, pretty gross. You know, what happens to those who break the law? 
But here you get a couple of examples of what it means for someone who has taken advantage of someone. If you've stolen from someone, if you've taken advantage, pay back. And there's kind of this common thread, somewhere around two times, five times, four times, five times the amount. Pay back plus four to five times the amount. So according to the law, Zacchaeus is in pretty good shape, wouldn't you say? Zacchaeus does what the law would call him to do. But you've got to ask the question then and keep going, um, why the rich young ruler must give up everything? If you go back to the story of the rich ruler, it's really quite interesting. Actually, if we can go back to the slide with the story of the rich ruler just for a second, pardon me for doing that, but if you go back to the slide where we had the actual story, if you take a look, I've obeyed all these commandments. If you take a look at the commandments, they announce, he announces, I've kept uh, five of them. Uh, back to Luke 18. Did I say 19? My apologies. Luke 18. Take a look at this. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. Second line there. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Hey, I thought there were ten commandments. List five commandments. You guys know that? Jesus lists five. I've kept them all, the man says. Probably hasn't committed adultery. Probably never murdered anybody. Of course, he hasn't heard Jesus' teaching on adultery and lust and murder and hatred. But according to the law, he's probably not committed that kind of sin. So Jesus gives five of these commandments. If you take a look at the first four commandments, they have to do with worshiping God only, your focus on the Sabbath. They're very God-oriented. And then we have this second section here, the five commandments, but there's one missing at the bottom end. Anybody know what it is? Oh, Sunday school time. Anybody remember the final commandment that's not mentioned in this story? Just like my class. Thou shalt not, in the old King James, covet that which is your neighbor's. In fact, when Jesus gives the response, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, this man has broken that commandment. Jesus was pretty slick, wasn't he? He goes at him and says, you know, have you kept these? Yep, 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 all good. Jesus doesn't come right back at him with the, net for the final commandment, don't covet. He cuts right to the heart, and he says, in fact, Coveting is your primary God. Money, wealth is your primary God. So Jesus cuts right for the throat. Well, how do we handle this passage then? What do we do with the inconsistency? Why does he get away with, why does Zacchaeus get away with some and the rich ruler has to give up everything and uh, doesn't get to cut a deal with Jesus? Come on, Jesus. I want to ask why the inconsistency. So I want to do two things in not in closing, don't want to say that, as we get toward application here. What do we do that with this? Two things that I want to do. First, I want to give you a hermeneutics lesson. Hermeneutics 101, and then I want to ask the question, what must I, what must we do to be saved? Hermeneutics 101, a fancy word for the art, and it is an art, or the science of biblical interpretation. How do you take a text that's some 2,000 years old, 
and transfer it into our day and age? How do you take sayings that are removed in another language, another culture, another time, another ethnicity, all this kind of stuff, how do you take that and bring that into our day and age and make application? That's hermeneutics 101. So here's what I'd like for us to suggest as we take a look at these two passages. I like the words of the uh, Mennonite scholar. Any Mennonites in here? All right. How many were here a number of years ago when I spoke on uh, my life as a Mennocostal? Any of you guys remember that? I still love the Mennonites. Don't tell my university that. Okay, forget it. Um, Willard Swartley, great Mennonite scholar. He says when we read the scriptures, we have to be able to discern between an ethic of duplication versus an ethic of discipleship. We don't read the Bible and stop on a passage and just take a look at what that passage says and immediately take everything literally right there and do it. We don't read the Bible that way. If that's the case, the story that we just read about the rich ruler, if we wouldn't read it in the context of Luke-Acts and even in the context of the Holy Scriptures, everyone in here would hear Jesus saying, and the first impulse would be, okay, are you ready? Who wants to be a disciple of Jesus? Sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me. Let's march out here and take this parade out on the streets. I don't think Jesus intended for us to read that passage in that particular way. So what we have to do is try to take the biblical text and pull it together and discern how these texts work together. How we pull these passages that at first glance seem maybe hypocritical, but at the very least inconsistent. How do we pull them together and salvage Jesus from this? Now you guys know this to be true already. I mean, you know passages that we grew up with. We called that proof texting when I was a kid. Someone would go and say, you know, open your Bible, turn to this particular passage, read it, and that's what Jesus is saying. That's what the, book, the message is saying. Well, eh, it's a little scary to do that. So Hermeneutics 101 would say duplication versus discipleship. What do the rich ruler, the story of the rich ruler, and the story of Zacchaeus hold in common? What's the thread that we can learn from together? So if we segue from hermeneutics 101 to what must we do to be saved, here's what I'd like to get us to think about. Some of us in this room may be called to the story of the rich ruler. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Pretty tough response. Some of us may be called to that. St. Anthony of Egypt, I've already mentioned. St. Francis of Assisi took it literally. Lillian Trasher, a little more contemporary, Lillian Trasher was a young woman who came into the Pentecostal movement at the beginning of the 20th, 20th century. In 1910, she felt God calling her to leave everything and go to this, the country of Egypt. She was engaged to a man. This man was going to become a businessman and was going to just invest in, in bettering their lives and so on. And she felt this tug on her heart and said, you know, I don't think this is what God wants me to do. She broke off the engagement. There's no missionary setup here yet. This is 1910. These denominations have not yet formed. She has nothing. She winds up getting a one-way ticket to Egypt. She gets to Egypt, winds up in a city just south of Cairo. She gets a little place to stay, has no idea what God's called her to do. But two weeks later, a baby is dropped off on her doorstep. 
not uncommon there. Baby would get dropped off and the parents run away. She starts an orphanage that becomes the most renowned orphanage in all of Egypt. Still running today. She's gone. Still running today. When she died, the funeral was done, and the Muslim community said that there would be a place in heaven for Sister Trasher. Now, forget the theology for a moment, okay? Are you tracking with me on that? Wow! This woman gave her life to the poor. By the time she died, numerous kids from the orphanage who had been educated and moved through wound up in government positions in Egypt. She had nothing. She had everything, and she gave it up, and she went to live among the poor. A more contemporary one, I didn't get on the slide, but uh, thinking just this last week about uh, other examples, how many know the name Shane Claiborne? Anybody know the name Shane Claiborne? If you don't, you should check him out sometime, particularly his book called The Irresistible Revolution. Claiborne was a university student in Philadelphia, and while he's there, they're talking about the gospel, they're talking about the sayings of Jesus, and he's just sitting in class and he's going, ugh, this, this just isn't connecting very well. And it comes one particular day where he recognizes that on his way to school, there was an old Catholic church that had been abandoned, and at that particular point in time, when he's going by each and every day, there's homeless people sitting there. Remember, the church is abandoned. They're not having any mass. It's just, it's, it's, it's sitting there empty. The homeless people are there, the city decides they're going to clean up the city. They're going to get rid of the poor. They're kind of a nuisance. We don't want them around. So what does Claiborne do? He and a bunch of his friends decide to take their lives out of the dormitory and go and camp out with the poor. They live right there among the poor. Wow. In protest. Eventually, what Claiborne did is he built a community right in the middle of the most horrific, violent, crime-filled area right there in Philadelphia. The poorest of the poor in Philadelphia. They built a little home. Five families came to move together in this small little area. They shared their possession. It's kind of like an Acts chapter 2 kind of thing. They took it pretty literally. Look at our lives. Look at how we're preparing. Look at all this stuff we've got. And now we look at these, these, these people, these homeless people. They have nobody. It's terrible for them. Let's go excuse me, and love on them. So some take it literally. But when you go to Luke, back to Luke, Luke also gives us examples of people that don't take it literally. And he's not as explicit with this, but it comes implicitly as you read the stories. Trust you guys, if you're not familiar with Luke's gospel and Acts, I encourage you to go and read the story. It's, it's not text to be read just piecemeal, just little by little but it's a story that needs to be read collectively. Joseph of Arimathea, the one who has the tomb that Jesus' body can be placed in. Uh, Barnabas, who was the individual who came and sold land after the day of Pentecost, sold land as people had need. He didn't sell it all. He sold as people had need, and he made sure it was given to the poor. Peter, when he escapes from prison, comes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, who would eventually write our gospel. I mean, these people had possessions. Lydia, the dealer in purple cloth, when Paul comes to the city of uh, Philippi, he winds up receiving her hospitality, and she presumably becomes the first house church leader. So you have many good examples of people along this line. 
So how do we then live in the tension? How do we live the tension between the rich ruler and the, and the Zacchaeus? The questions I want you guys to ask are, do I love God and do I love my neighbor? Most of us can't just go and get rid of everything right now. We have jobs, we have responsibilities, we have families to provide for, we have loans, mortgages, student loans, whatever it is. We just can't drop everything and go. So how do we live this tension? I want to throw one more idea along that line to you. A book, if you're ever interested in, in digging deeper into this kind of an idea, uh, Sanford and Wilkins, these guys wrote a book called Hidden Worldviews. This is a required book that each of our students read in their first semester freshman year at Evangel. And uh, it's a book on worldviews. Wor a worldview, everybody has a worldview, and a worldview is essentially what I believe and what I practice. Really important to catch that. The worldview is not simply what you believe, but your worldview is what you believe and you practice. Do you guys realize how important that is? We say things that we believe, but in practice we're not there. So classically, in a worldview course, you might do something like this. You do Christianity and Hinduism, Christianity and Islam, Christianity and Taoism. You do all kinds of stuff like that. You might do ethnicity, take a look at worldviews, cultural shifts. This book is one that speaks of hidden worldviews. Do you guys know there are hidden worldviews all around us? They're hidden, but they're very present. Salvation by therapy. There's a pill for everything, you know that? You can fix everything. There's a diet for everybody, and it only takes a week and a half, and you don't have to change your eating habits. There's an exercise machine that was just invented yesterday, and it'll be out of date tomorrow, but it'll, it'll fix it. Um, you can live a hut to 120 years old, and you'll never age. You can look eternally young. You can have sex till you're 90, because we can help that. Are you tracking with me? Salvation by therapy. Other hidden worldviews, though. How about individualism? It's me. It's my life. It's what I want. It's my stuff. And another complementary hidden worldview to that, consumerism, materialism. Those worldviews are pretty prevalent in our world, aren't they? We get bombarded by ads every day, roughly 40,000 ads a day. Did you know that? 40,000 advertisements a day, everything from your Nike check mark to your Pepsi can, on and on and on we go. You're driving down the road, about 40,000 ads. And what do they all say? Buy, 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 consume, consume, get it, take it, need it, need it, need it. I can't live without it. Consumption, consumption, consumption. So how do we overcome this? I like the words of Richard Foster, the idea, and he says this. He says, we need to think about simplicity versus these three things you see on the screen. Simplicity versus duplicity. You can probably figure that out. Simplicity, first of all, doesn't mean living a simple life, but simplicity meaning singular and focus versus duplicity, which is double-minded. And simplicity is, in fact, freedom, but to be in living in duplicity is to be living in bondage. When you're double-minded, you're being... Oh, you're a mess. You can't figure it out. He says we want to live in simplicity and not asceticism. Asceticism says that we want to give things up for the sake 
of giving them up. So you want to demonstrate, I just give up. It's kind of like beating my body into submission. Well, that's not simplicity. Simplicity is freedom, not beating into submission. It's liberating, not slicing my, doing stigmata. I don't want to say slicing my wrist. Stigmata and that kind of thing, selling everything. Simplicity versus idolatry. Some think simplicity is a way of showing how spiritual and pure I really am. Simplicity is truly freedom. I like the words of, or the idea of Ron Sider, another Mennonite scholar. Ron Sider wrote a book about uh, 30 years ago. Recently came out the 25th anniversary edition. It was deemed one of the top 10 books in the 20th century. You may have read it. Just been updated a little bit in terms of numbers, but it's called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And he gives all kinds of good theology as to how we live among the poor. But um, in there, he talks about the graduated tithe. And I remember when I first encountered this, it kind of rocked my world. He said, you know, the idea that we tithe 10%, tithe, and that's it, he says, erroneous. In fact, you go to the New Testament and even the Old Testament, the New Testament, an emphasis upon tithes and offerings, 10% plus offerings, wherever you want to go with that. And I'm not going to take a long time to talk about tithes in the New Testament. However, he would argue this, that the more you make, the more you should be giving away. Do you hear the graduated tithe? The more you make, the higher percentage you should be able to give away. The more we're able to consume, the more we're able to take in, the more liberated we should be able to be to demonstrate our generosity. I don't know what the poverty line is here in, in, in Winnipeg, but let's say 20,000. 30,000, 40,000, I don't know, it's 30,000. You know, the traditional way would say, okay, get that young family, probably a single mom, kids, hey, you need to give your $3,000, that's what I was taught, 10%. The guy makes a million a year, 100,000. Now, I'm not here to judge, I'm not here to stand in this kind of way again in front of you, but I like what, what Cider says. A graduated tithe. We should become increasingly generous as we're blessed by God. Quiet in here this morning. So what must we do to be saved? What must we do to be saved? I'm going to rely on the words of um, Paul here in Philippians where Paul says, continue, keep on working out your salvation. You know, when I grew up in the Pentecostal church, you got saved once, and then you, were, you found favor with God. And of course, the irony is that it never worked because you got saved about 40,000 times, just over and over and over again. Some of you don't know my tradition. Um, you might not understand it, but some of you do. So in fact, we said we're saved, but we were in fact eternally insecure. We didn't know that we were really right with God. But the idea was that it was simply this grace alone, grace only. And I don't want to dis diminish that. I don't want to diminish that idea that it's salvation by grace. When I read the Gospels, I cannot come to the to this simple conclusion that it's just, I, I just say this simple prayer and everything between me and God is right. The Gospels are hard. The Gospels call us to follow Jesus. They call us to journey with him. They call us to strive for the kingdom. Strive, I'm not saying legalism. I'm not saying earnest. Uh, um, um, legalism, this kind of a sense that you earn your salvation. No, I'm saying that striving for the kingdom is holding out my hand and following Jesus. 
and the difficult sayings and the living the tension that Jesus calls us to live. And how long does that take? It takes a lifetime. So here's what I want to do in conclusion. In a moment, you're going to have a slide put up in front of you. And unfortunately, there's no easy answer. What do we do with Zacchaeus and the rich ruler? How do we blend it? I wish I could stand up here and point to each and every one of you. Go sell it all uh, four times. Uh, You, 70%. Uh, you're good with 10. I wish I could do that. <laughs> I wish as well. I'd be the one to receive the, no. Um, but then I'd give it to the poor. Stay with me. This is a tension we're called to live with. And again, the response this morning is not just to sit here and go, oh, okay, I get it. I've got this figured out now. I'm going to go out and do it. This is a practice. This is a lifelong journey of trying to figure this out. To give yourself to Jesus, to give yourself to one another, to your community, to your family, to those that you worship with, and to say, how do I sort this out? How do I live my life in tension with that which I've been blessed with and those that are around me that are desperate and needy? How do I live generously? And live generously even among those who might be around us. So, I'm not dismissing you, but this slide's going to go up. We're going to give you about five minutes simply to reflect upon, not the slides, one slide. Give you about five minutes just to take a look at this um, slide and reflect upon these ideas. After about five minutes, Pastor Jerry will come and close the service. Just pause, stop at one that might just really speak to you, see what they say. And I'll stop there.
Father, as we awake each day and the sun begins to rise and we face the starting of another day, we thank you for the life that we've been given. Thank you for the people that we love so much and that love us in return. Thank you for breath and health and jobs and careers. And yet the riches of this life could never pass what we've been given with our families and our friends by our side. So we thank you for the life that we've been given. And, and now it's up to us to use our full potential each day. Father, it's really not about us. You know, as much as we like to think that the sun rises and sets because we exist, it's, it's not about us. We work for others not because it makes us feel good about ourselves, but because it's what you said to do. So God, your hand has blessed us again and again. And in this nation of ours, we have gifts beyond our understanding. And at the same time, many of us have debt that's just over our heads. God, thank you for the gifts that you have blessed us with. And for some of us, we are able to return the blessing by giving back. And for those who feel weighted down by debt, I pray that you will bring people into their lives that will help them work through the issue of debt and eventually see the light at the end of the tunnel so that they can be free. Not only of the debt that they carry, but free to give freely of what you have provided. God, help us to be good stewards of what you've entrusted us with and make us a giving people. May we be faithful with our finances so that we can empower more people to do what is needed in this city and in this world. God, thank you for speaking through Marty, through your word. stand with me. Do you have any announcements before I do the blessing regarding the setup and teardown? Talking to your mic. If everybody could just help stack chairs and uh, that would be awesome. Your own chair and then those of you who can't lift your chairs, somebody else will do it for you. We'll cheer them on. Yeah. And then there are some dollies for the older gentlemen who have strong muscles. If you could... Uh, this is a free society. There's yeah. some strong women in this congregation. Okay. Too, I right? just don't want it. I just don't and want not to just strong-willed <laughs> women, I'll tell you. <laughs> Thank you for correcting me. I just have to go there. <laughs> Your help would be appreciated in our teardown, if you have the time. Thank you, my friend. It's always a pleasure to have you. Hopefully again next year. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. If you want a blessing before you go, here it is. It's a Celtic blessing. As you go, good be on you, a gift from heaven. As you go, wisdom be on you, a gift from heaven. As you go, restraint be on you, a gift from heaven. But as you go, the giver be on you, a gift from heaven. Jesus be on you, a gift from heaven. And soul sanctuary as you go, the Spirit be on you, a gift from heaven.
Be blessed, and we'll see you next week.